<laughs> no, that's all right. So it's December 13th, uh, 2009. The opening prayer was not right. It will not be a 45-minute message, but it's possible it could be an hour and 45 minutes. Uh, our message today, if you're taking notes, and please, in your bulletin, I put some bullet points for you. I did this because I don't want you to walk away from this message without getting the key things that you're going to write in next to what is there, okay? Uh, I almost never do that. I don't want to treat you like we're in kindergarten and you need to fill in the blank, but all I can tell you is this is too important to miss, so I want you to have it, okay? Our message is called The Anatomy of Jesus. You know, I work in the medical field, so words like anatomy and physiology are thrown around every day in our workplace. The word anatomy comes from the Greek base. It's a compound word, and it means to separate or to cut open. The primary way that scientists have learned what they know about the human body, unfortunately, is by cutting it open and separating parts. Because of that, sometimes the word anatomy just means body. And today that's the way in which we mean it. We're going to look at today, we're going to separate and bring out into the open some key principles that the devil has worked to conceal regarding the anatomy or body of Christ. There are things about the body of Christ that we don't understand, and because we don't understand them, we don't know how to walk in them. Our goal today is to learn more about the anatomy of Jesus. In your bulletin, you see some bullet points. I think I listed them one through five. It says, unfathered. That bullet point list, y'all see it? You can nod at me if you did. Yeah. Okay. This is because in my estimation, and not me alone, I, I have picked up on other godly men's work here, the American church lacks these five things. As they're listed there, you see unfathered. The American church has accepted no father figures in our lives. Very few times do we have godly men who have gone before us that said, you know, Darren, that was a good thing that you did. I am proud of you. The direction you're in is a good one. When you think of a father figure, sometimes you think only of correction. The primary purpose for a father figure in your life is to affirm you in the right way that you should go. That is his function. This is why little kids look to see if their daddies are at their baseball games. Because they want to know, Daddy is proud of me. They want to know, especially male figures, but male and female, want to know that they have earned the favor of their father. And when we don't allow a figure like that in our life, when we're denied it, it leaves a gaping hole. And the church has a gaping hole in it. The church is secondly uncorrected. This is when you do not allow anyone in your life that you're accountable to. You like them, you go play golf with them, you attend church with them, but the moment that they look at you and say, the way that you just spoke to your wife is sin, that's the end of your relationship with that person. Or you tell them something like, brother, that's off limits. In Christ, nothing's off limits. Nothing. What, what part of your life is not open to the inspection of the brothers. But the American church has not allowed this. We simply run to another church if they see too deeply into us in one church. We're unfruitful. We have gone out to win converts and because they have prayed a prayer beside your table, we've considered them saved and moved on. 
As long as they showed up in church, we've considered them saved. The purpose of being blessed is to bless other people. The American church will only be fruitful when every man, woman, and child in the church is teaching other people to be like them. But first they must be like Christ. It is not a fruitful church to have church growth that simply transfers from one church to another. It is not a fruitful church just to have a giant church full of people. We looked at Ahaz's altar the other night. New and large is not necessarily God's blessing. God's blessing is something that is multiplying. The very first command God ever gave man, go forth and multiply. This means when Bob Cook gets set free and on power and his whole life changes, he needs to be looking for other people that he can build that into. Jesus did not send them out and say, go make converts. He said, go make disciples of all nations. Fourthly, the American church is unhealed. It's unhealed because we do not allow people to get close enough to our lives to look and say, Brother, every time I see you mention your father, you may not notice it, but there's a grimace upon your face. Brother, every time we get into a certain area, I feel unforgiveness in you about the pastor's church that you just left. We don't allow people to get close enough to us to expose our wounds so that they can be healed. We simply move on down the road. It's Piccadilly Christianity, Luby's Christianity. If you don't like what you're getting here, move on down. Maybe the desserts are next. We're untaught. This is the most illiterate time in America's history, by far. In our age of videos and everything else, how many of you could take the first ten chapters of John and summarize the content of each chapter? I mean, even with a sentence. A year after the Reformation, most, Reformation, most people on the street corner could quote entire chapters of the book of the Bible. Recent surveys given. John 13, Acts 13, Romans 13, Corinthians 13. Name a scripture, even paraphrasing it from each one of those chapters to Bible students graduating from a Christian school. Corinthians 13 was the only one that had responses in the blanks among high school seniors. We're not teaching our kids the scripture at home. We are not learning it. We're coming to church and that's enough for us. It will not work. This kind of unfathered, uncorrected, unfruitful, unhealed, untaught church will never reach the nations. It will never be what it should be. Un Fortunately, I should say rather fortunately, the fivefold problem has a fivefold solution. We find the unfathered church corrected, write this in your blank, by the apostle. Somebody should be in your life affirming the right direction. There should be a mentor in your life. There is no such thing as a mature Christian that fell from the sky. It hasn't happened since Jesus. And even in Jesus, if you look carefully at his teaching, you will find out that he had influences in his life. The cure for the uncorrected church is a prophet. You think of a prophet as the guy in church that stands up and prophesies. This is not necessarily right. 
The prophet is the man like Nathan who comes into your life and says, I know we're friends, but I wouldn't care if you were the king of the Israel. You were in sin. Who in your life has ever dared to look you in the eye, not from a pulpit, but in your kitchen, and point to you and say, brother, that is sin. We need those figures in our life. Matthew was only 18 years old. We were moving, and I snapped at my wife, and he looked right at me and said, that's not pleasing to God when you talk to her that way. Wow, what a thing it is to have a count. He wasn't married. There's a million reasons I could have disregarded his counsel. And we're taught to disregard that. I don't care what anybody thinks. This is why the American church is sick and dying. You need prophet figures in your life. No man is an island. The unfruitful church is cured by the evangelist. An evangelist is not a man who wins converts. I don't care how many times you see it on TV. An evangelist is a man who teaches you to multiply disciples. You read in Isaiah 58 before church started in this week, I asked you to meditate on it. The Lord heals you when your eyes are on other people. For a church to be healthy, for people to be healthy, you must be actively sharing what God has done for you. I tell you what, it's the singular best cure for depression. Folic acid is wonderful, but it will not do for you what putting your faith into action by sharing the good things that God has done for you will do. The unhealed church needs a pastor. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings today, but let's be honest, it wouldn't be the first time if I did. A pastor is not a man who speaks eloquently behind this pulpit. He may not even stand behind a pulpit. A pastor is a man who puts his arm around you, looks into your life, and says, brother, for you to grow in the Lord, this must happen. This means he has to know you. He has to be all up in your business. Not controlling you, but able to see all of those areas you would rather him not see and say, brother, maybe this is a freedom that that brother enjoys, but I can see it has an unhealthy hold on your life. We don't allow it. We simply comment that we like the way a pastor preaches. We comment that we love the way that the worship service sounded. Well, good for you. And that and a cup of coffee will send you straight to hell. It doesn't matter whether you like the way that I preach or that you felt a warm fuzzy in the worship service if you are not being pastored. This is how you can have churches that are enormous in size. And I love our big churches. I am not picking on any ministry here. But there are big churches that are enormous in size and five years later... Not a single person has advanced beyond where they came into the church. Lord, in some churches, they're not even told to read their Bibles. They don't want to offend them. Which brings me to the last part. The cure for being untaught is the biblical teacher. A five-fold problem needs a five-fold answer. And a biblical teacher, friends, is not just behind the pulpit. The word actually says you need that no man teach you. But that presumes a connection with Jesus that is teaching you daily. That presumes an interaction. How many of you have ever heard the audible word of God? I mean audibly spoken to you. Raise your hand if you have heard that. Praise God. You want to hear it again in your own voice? Open your Bible and read aloud. You will have heard the audible word of God then. 
Our God loved you enough to record in this book sitting in your laps His Word for you. Not reading it daily. It's just like if the President of the United States was sitting talking and you stuck out your hand and said, not interested. <laughs> Obviously, it's much worse than that. The American church is untaught. We simply want to know how to be blessed. We're not interested in how to learn how to be sacrificial. We want to know how to build bigger and better kingdoms that are really for the glory of men, and we fill them with powerful weaklings. The world esteems them. We talk about our clothes. We talk about our cars. Look how blessed we are! And I promise you before the living God, it is nakedness, it is wretchedness, and it is blindness. The American body of Christ is sick and needs to be cured. However, none of these fivefold cures can be applied without first fully, repeatedly, daily embracing the cross. All healing is rooted in Yeshua's work at Calvary, which is what placed you in the body of Christ to begin with. We say, well, I got saved on such and such day. Brother, you are missing the point. I witnessed to a man in a conference room at work. I could see he was becoming angry. He clenched his fist. I said, brother, I love you. Right as he punched me right in the mouth. After the workplace required him to go through anger management. He came back and he said, I just couldn't get over that you still smiled at me and you loved me even when I did that. And I said, brother, you need to be saved. You know what his response was to me? I was saved on May 12th of 19 whatever mm. in such and such church. He didn't get the connection at all. He didn't get it. And as far as I know, he's still lost and doing deplorable things. On one hand, I, I blame that man. He has a personal responsibility. On the other, I take serious issue with this pastor. I don't want to stand before the king and have left you in the condition we found you. The word edify means to build you up, to cause you to be better than you were when I found you. The key thing that you can write next to the fivefold ministry and the cross for that matter is it will leave you better than you walked in. That does not happen if you don't embrace all elements of it. It may help to examine why so many men and women who identify themselves as Christian are in such poor spiritual health. In other words, if we're going to look at the anatomy of Christ, if we're going to look at the body of Christ, we need to look at how did we get into this position. I am not going to take you point by point through it. Not going to give you the historical lesson today. If I did, your minds would wander towards, I can't believe they did that. And how could that person have thought this? And I would have never. Instead, I'm going to take you through a story in Judges. And in it, invite you to look at your own life. But I am telling you, this is how the American church got into the shape that it's in and why Christians in China are in Korea and Mozambique are so far outproducing us. There was a day when the nations of the world flocked to the United States to hear about the living God. 
When foreign dignitaries came and said, I didn't find the strength of America in the halls of its Congress. I found it behind its pulpits. There is no one streaming here for that purpose today. And it is the church's fault. It's not Satan's fault. It's not the atheist's fault. I don't want to hear one more tirade against homosexuals and uh, whatever else people are picking on lately. But homosexuals seem to be the biggest one. I, I, I don't want to hear it. Oh, I, homosexual and abortions. Uh, sickening abominations, period. Neither one would exist in this country on the level that it does if the church was what it was supposed to be. Amen. People would not feel like it was okay to kill their baby and come back and say it was a choice. Amen. They would not do it. Right. People would not openly walk down the street in homosexuality flaunting it to the world if the church was what it was supposed to be. But as long as the church is sick and dying, they have no standard to look at. There is no visible image of Christ. His body is not here. We simply run from meeting to meeting and say, Bless me, bless me, bless me, bless me. This is not Christianity. Bless me is not Christianity. The Christian heart says, How do I bless them? How do I set them free? I wanted the church to meditate on Isaiah 58 because we have been so inundated with the latest prophetic word that would bless you, that we have lost touch with what it means to go bless others. It's good that we do missions. You see, I do it 11 times I went to Mexico. This church spares no expense. When we can't pay our rent, we still pay our missionaries. And that is not nearly enough because there's a mission field all around us. Yes. Turn to Judges. You have awesome joy. This is no offense to you church brats that have grown up all of your lives in the sanctuary. But my favorite Christians have always been the newly converted. Those that have not been around it. Those that were in foreign religions or those that just were proud enough to say they were born again pagans. And then got born again by the living God. And the reason is... The familiarity with the American church has produced in people familiar with it a total lack of reverence for God. That we think we can lay down in sin and live in the presence of God. And it does not work. There is no discernment left. So that if a pastor stands and says, Brother, you cannot be in this position. Everybody demands that I explain why. Shouldn't it rather be enough that you pray and the Lord show you? Shouldn't it be enough rather that you trust me? But we don't tolerate it. Explain why. Expose it. Why? That's not going to help him. Not going to help her. My goal is not to destroy somebody. It's to build them up. Look at Judges 13. This is amazing. I want to tell you, I got something totally new out of this for the first time. Starting in verse 1, we're going to read down through 5. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistine for 40 years. First way the American church got the way that it is, you cannot do evil and not be subjugated. You, you, you could write that little formula if you want to. I didn't intend for you to, but if you want to, Evil brings subjugation. 
You cannot have the things going on inside the church, much less the world, and it not bring subjugation. It's going to 100% of the time. Evil brings bondage. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was sterile and remained childless. The angel of the Lord appealed to her, appeared to her and said, You are sterile and childless, but you are going to conceive and have a son. Now see to it, before we get to that, you all know that this son is a special son. He's a deliverer. If you want to write down an equation, if you want to think about an equation, if evil brings subjugation, God's mercy brings a deliverer. God will let you reap the consequence of evil so that He can show you mercy through a deliverer. That's largely what the book of Judges is about. The same story. Evil brought subjugation, mercy brought a deliverer. Evil brought subjugation, mercy brought a deliverer. One of my favorite things to do when a man and woman sit in front of me on the edge of divorce and say, we don't know how our lives got this way, I just laugh. It seems irreverent. If you've been with me in that situation, you know. Like, you don't care. You're unsympathetic. No, you know how you got this way. It was evil. Nobody who has ever served the Lord with all of their heart, day in and day out, ends up in this position. It comes from backsliding. It comes from turning away. And the sooner you admit that, the sooner you can get healed, restored, and mercy will bring you a deliverer. The longer you stand and say, oh, it's a complete mystery. Apparently the Word of God doesn't work for me. You will be in subjugation. Look at these words that are given to this woman. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean because you will conceive and give birth to a son. No razor may be used on his head because the boy is to be a Nazarite set apart to God from birth. And he will begin the deliverance from the hands of the Philistines. I need to tell you about a Nazarite real quick. Here, here's, here's the uh, cliff notes. Nazarites don't touch grapes. They certainly don't eat them. Not only do they not touch grapes, they don't touch raisins. They don't touch wine. They don't touch even the grapevine. Not the seeds, not the skins of grapes. They don't touch fermented drink of any kind. They don't go near the dead, and no razor may ever touch their head. So she's going to give birth to a Nazarite, but what did God tell her? You may not eat. How about that? Now come on, let your mind start to race about why. All of you have been pregnant at some point. Not all of you have been, but all of you who have been pregnant at some point. Because although I have often looked pregnant, never had a gestational period with a child. What a mama eats, where does it go? Straight to the baby. Yeah. In fact, the mama's life-giving blood goes to her placenta and then to the baby. In fact, mama and baby are connected in very body and a doctor or maybe a father has to cut that connection at some point to have two human beings. Yeah. Wow. There's a deliverer born in Israel. Yeah. Samson's mom was required to keep the diet of a Nazarite because her body and Samson's body were connected. 
Likewise, you are the body of Christ. You and the Deliverer share the same life-giving blood, substance of the Father, and nourishment of the Word. You may not actually be the Deliverer, but you are most certainly an extension of His body. What you eat on a daily basis, things that you watch on TV on a daily basis, have an effect on the body of Christ. The church, in short, sees Jesus as saving us, delivering us, but does not feel a tangible connection to Jesus in any way. Said another way, the church is fine with saying you are Savior, but not fine with saying you are Lord. We sever that connection right there. I love Jesus, but there is no but. I love Jesus, but we all have to live in this flesh. Well, you're going to die in it, buddy. Twice. Twice. You're going to die in it twice. The church got in the shape that it is in by losing connection with Jesus. I went to, I was saved in 19 blah, 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 blah. Brother, I am saved daily. I want you to know that I'm saved from myself. I'm saved from devilish influences. I'm saved from the oppression of wicked men. I am saved daily and will have to be saved tomorrow. And I... I am aiming for perfection, but in this lifetime, I don't think I'll ever face a day where I don't have to be saved from the terrible flesh that I carry on this body. Mm. We lost that connection somewhere, and we just started looking at ways to feed the flesh, please the flesh, whatever pleased the eye, whatever seemed desirable for us, Mm. so that our lives are all about entertainment. Our lives are all about comfort in a Christian's life. It's not aestheticism. I'm not asking you to put on burlap sacks, but a Christian's life is not about how to please you. It's how to please Jesus. If you think about a mother, it's fine. You don't care that she's drinking wine. You don't care that maybe she smoked a cigarette. But when she's pregnant, all of a sudden, those two things become offensive, don't they? Why do they become offensive? Because she's affecting an innocent. Your life is no longer yours. It is connected to the innocence of Christ and it affects him. It affects his hands and feet on the earth. Because when Eric Stevens falls short of the glory of God in a demonstrable way, other people see it and who do they blame? Jesus. They blame Jesus. I got a family full of lost people. And they got more excuses than they have opinions. But you can trace the great apostasy in my family back to a church not handling something well and such a shallow family that they all fell away because of it. Mm. But what that church did affected the body of Christ because it either leaves cancerous cells in the body or you suffer amputation. And neither one were God's original plan for you. Turn with me to Judges 14. Samson, uh, let's see, we're going to read 1 through 6. Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman. Why was Samson born? To deliver Israel, right? Who was occupying Israel? Philistine. So Samson's supposed to be buddying up next to, wanting to marry up next to, honey up next to? No, really. Philistines? When he returned, he said to his father and mother, 
I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as a wife. Samson had a desire for the enemy as a wife. We're going to read in a minute that his parents didn't understand this was from the Lord. That is so misunderstood. I've misunderstood it. It was not the Lord's desire that Samson want a Philistine bride. He's supposed to destroy the Philistines. It was of the Lord that God was going to use his wicked desire to put Samson back on track. What is he supposed to be doing? Killing Philistines. Through a horrible, horrible event and the great loss of life, this tragedy of loving a foreign woman here put Samson back on track temporarily. Great pain in his life. Don't you be tricked, American church, into thinking that because the Lord had a hand in something, that all that you thought to do was God's will. Most of the time what we do is we decide what we want, then we invoke the Lord's name in it. And because he will work through it, we say, oh, it was the Lord. It might be the Lord working to crush you. Mm -hmm. Why would a loving God crush me? Because he's not going to leave you the way he found you. Mm -hmm. He is going to take you to a higher place. The word of God crushes everybody. That's a great mistake. We read this and go, oh, well, it must have been God's will for him to be whoring around with the enemy. No, it was sin. But God can use even sinful men to advance his cause. It's how he used Cyrus. It's how he used Pilate. It's how he used Caiaphas. Sometimes it's how he uses me. His father and mother replied, Isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistine to get a wife? Sounds like there was a little accountability in Samson's life, huh? Look what he does to it. But Samson said to his father, get her for me. Is he listening to his accountability partners? She's the right one for me. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. For at that time, they were ruling over Israel. God didn't want him to have a foreign bride. He wanted to have him love a foreign bride or would use his wicked love for a foreign bride to pull him into conflict with the people he's supposed to be fighting. I learned this lesson one time. I had forgotten that there is a great divide between those who are in Christ and those who are not. And I got too close to somebody on the other side of the divide. A friend. I always have deep, loyal, loving relationships. That's a part of my life. It's a need that I have. I'm not interested in superficial relationships. If we can't be close on an intimate level, then we're probably not going to be close at all. So I began to develop this. And I felt the Lord beginning to warn me. This one's not the same as Matthew. He's not the same as your brothers in Christ. Remember that. But I treated him just like he was a brother in Christ. After he stole about $1,500 from me in a single day, I realized. And the Lord used it to remind me. Sinners sin. Dogs bark. They can't help it. Don't look at this brother as an equal. He's dying and doesn't know it. You are here for one reason, one reason only. Rescue him. Rescue him. But don't just friendship him. Rescue him. If you use friendship to rescue him, fine. But there's always a dividing line. Samson went down to Timnah together with his father and mother. As they approached the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion came roaring towards him. What's a Nazarite doing in a vineyard? Wow. 
He's not even allowed to go near a grapevine. He can't touch the seeds. He can't touch the skins. He certainly can't touch the grape, not even if it's dried up like a raisin or squished into a liquid to drink. He's not allowed around it. What's he doing there? Now, this is a translation issue, but I want you to understand his parents went with him to Timnah. You're going to find out later, they did not go into the grapevine with him. They didn't even know he was in there. Anytime a Christian is in a place he should not be, the lion is waiting to pounce upon you. He's waiting. You cannot dwell in unwholesome places that you are set apart from and expect not to be bitten. The confusing part about this is that the Spirit of the Lord came on him in power so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. Oh, well then, must have been victory, right? You mean because the Lord delivered him it didn't mean that it was wrong what he did? You know, I told somebody once, I would never be tempted to look at something I shouldn't if the first time I did it, one of my eyeballs got stabbed out. I'd work to protect that eye. It'd be important to me. But what happened to the American church is because of mercy and because of grace. We looked. Nothing happened to us. We felt like it was okay then. Delayed consequence has tricked the American church into calling grace something that it's not. Calling mercy something that it is not. Notice something. But he told neither his father nor his mother what he had done. That's how you know they weren't there. Why didn't he tell them? Because he didn't want accountability in his life. He knew that it was wrong. He seemed to get away with this problem, which of course only encourages more sin. If the first time you sinned, you got slapped with a big hand from heaven, you wouldn't do it again. But the fact that men's sins trail behind them encourages more sin. Friends, I want to tell you, this is also why consequence can never be removed from restoration. Say, but it's mercy, it's mercy, it's mercy. No, discipline your children. You hear me? Love them, forgive them, and corporally punish them. If they do not have consequence, they will never learn not to do it. Instead, they feel emboldened to do it again. Have you ever seen a generation that is worse at this than these last couple? You know, I am only 34 years old, and I am part of the biggest disaster in history when all the hippies had children. <laughs> but I still remember being in Fred and Suzanne's neighborhood before I ever knew Jennifer. I was only nine years old, and I shot out a man's window. His neighbor chased me down, disciplined me, and called my parents. That doesn't happen anymore. We call the police. How many of you feel free to tell your neighbor's kid, stop being disrespectful. You stop that right now. Of course not. Well, I'm not going to do that. It's not my kid. Then we wonder why we have all of the problems flaunted in the church's face we did. You may not feel free to do it out there. You have 100% authority to do it in the church. And it doesn't stop with children. We're accountable to each other. He hid it from his parents because he knew it was wrong. When believers are in the places that they should not be, 
they're vulnerable to attack. The fact that Samson seemed to win the battle did not mean that he would not ultimately lose this war. How many of you have promised yourself, oh, well, look, I did good with it today. I put down that desire to pick up the remote for something unwholesome, to surf on the Internet for something unwholesome, to read that magazine for something unwholesome. I did good with it today, so it's all right, I'm winning, only to fall to it next week. You can win a single battle and it embolden you, and in the end you lose the war. It's a false kind of confidence. The church has often avoided consequences of private battles, so it is losing the war with sin. The Bible actually says of an elder, rebuke him publicly. Publicly. Why? You cannot afford to have something in a leader in the church just kind of swept under the rug. Publicly. Ultimately, it would have been better to be allowed to suffer a consequence of a battle and repent rather than to go on and lose the entire war because of sinful habits. What does that mean, saints? Nobody's going to like this one. It means you need to experience consequence when you do something wrong. You need to be humiliated when you do something wrong. I never forget my pastor who has many flaws but even more Godly attributes. I learned everything that I know that's good from him. A man who had been sleeping with another woman in the church and he was playing some instrument in the church came to us for counsel. He had been cast out of other churches and he had somewhat of a scarlet letter around his neck. I seen my pastor be incredibly merciful at times. So I expected mercy, right? I mean, the guy's, he's been cast out of all these churches. He needs mercy. My pastor looked right at him and said, shame on you, you dog. The guy just looked at him in unbelief. He said, shame on you. You're a destroyer of people's lives. Shame on you. He waited for the guy to almost get up and leave before he grabbed him by the hand and taught him how to be restored. But the shame has to come before the restoration. Or there's no restoration. There's only emboldened to do more. How many of you would let a two-year-old just look at you and go, "Mm." How many of you will let that go on and go, Oh, well, he's sorry. You better let some healing warmth flow through his body if you want that behavior to stop. Now, I hate to say this. It sounds condescending. But whether you're 70 in this room or 7 in this room, your base nature is not any different than that two-year-old. If you sin and constantly get away with it, it will embolden you to be led right into a death trap. Turn with me to Judges 14. 8. 14, 8. We're already there. I'm sorry. Sometime later, when he went back to marry her, he turned aside to look at the lion's carcass. Carcass. Is that something that's living? Numbers 6, 6 actually says, not just don't touch something dead, don't go near it. In it was a swarm of bees and some honey, which he scooped out with his hands and ate it as he went along. When he rejoined his parents, he gave them some, and they too ate it. But he did not tell them that he had taken the honey from the lion's carcass. Where'd the lion die? In the vineyard. So where is Samson back at? In the vineyard. 
Who knows how many times he went back there? How long does it take bees to populate a dead body? And then in that dead body grow honey. How many times had he been back there because there had been no consequence? How many times have you been back to the vineyard because you had non-experienced consequences? And while you're looking at something you shouldn't be looking at, what happens? You see something you shouldn't see. And then a desire begins to rise in you that you were never supposed to face. You're not supposed to face it because you're not supposed to be staring at it. And what happens? What you looked at suddenly looked sweet to the flesh. And then it began to draw you and draw you until a look turns into a touch and the rest is over. It's over right there. It's over. Nobody falls into adultery in a single day. Nobody considers their husband an idiot in a single day. It comes from gazing at something, considering it, meditating on it. James speaks of your own evil desires pulling at you till they give birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. What you need to know about that is sin has a progression to it. It always takes you further than you wanted to go. 100% of the time. Notice, he didn't tell mom and dad because it was sin. Remember, he got away with it, right? All the time, sin is numbing him. It's like anesthesia. It's putting him under the ether. It's okay, Samson. Nobody knows you've been going to the vineyard every day. It's okay, Samson. They ate the honey and enjoyed it. That must be good. They, they, they actually made the, uh, the Baruch over it, the blessing over it. So, I mean, God used it, right? <clears throat> he might be using it for a purpose you don't realize. Sin kills, and it's luring him to sleep. The church is full of people who are not seriously daily connected with Jesus. They are in dangerous areas that they should never be in. In this case, a false view of grace is becoming a death sentence for the American church. Not having received any tangible penalty for being in vineyards, we go back. While dwelling in areas we shouldn't be in, we see things we are forbidden to touch. Upon touching them and not receiving immediate consequence, we are lured into feeling as if God doesn't really care. And our bumper stickers say things like, it's all about grace and mercy anyway, isn't it? Says the American church. Turn with me to Judges 16. We're going to bring this home and then go through the anatomy of Christ. Yeah. Am I speaking to anybody in this room today? Yeah. Yeah. I have never prayed. I have never in my whole life sought God any harder than I did for this message. And it's not because the words didn't come to me easily. Most of it was taught to me. So it's already there. It's because I want the word that our church needs. And as much as I'm talking about the American church, to some level we have been tainted by its disease. And I don't want it. I want to stand before the king and be his pure and spotless bride. In Judges 16, 
we see the natural consequence to the way we Americans have been living. We're going to read 16, 18 through 20. When Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines, Come back once more. He has told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with silver in their hands, having put him to sleep on her lap. The devil has put the American church to sleep in his lap. He has shaved our heads and our strength is gone. She called a man to shave off the seven braids of his hair and so began to subdue him. He was called to subdue them. And he was subdued by her. Truthfully, he was subdued by sin that had no consequence. That's what he was subdued by. And his strength left him. Then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Our strength is our connection with Jesus, his methods and his body. We need to live a daily life dwelling in his word. The reason that Samson did not realize that the Lord had left him was because he was used to getting away with sin and was not expecting consequence. See, God's mercy in not throwing him away the first time he went in the vineyard. God's mercy in not throwing him away the second time. Or when he touched the dead body. Or when he gave its fruits to others to eat. Or when he found his first Philistine wife. Or his second Philistine lover ultimately paved the way for him to kill himself. Now I ask you something, saints. In what way is our lives different? It's time for judgment to begin with the house of God. It is time for the searing spotlight of God's Holy Spirit to examine your motives, your ways, your life. And having passed that test, we will be unshakable, powerful, and destructive forces to the enemy. But unwilling to go through that process, which is initiated at the cross and completed in the fivefold ministry, you have no hope of succeeding. And hear this warning the love of most will grow cold. And if America has 300 million people in it, 80% of them claim to be Christian, we're fond of saying, oh, well, most of them can't be. That must be the most. Think about it globally. Think about America as a percentage of the world's Christian population. If you had to bet on the world's Christian population having a lukewarm segment in it, who would you think it would be? Well, that's a little different, isn't it? I don't think Brother Yoon's going to get his place taken by too many in the American church. When we accept no mentors... No apostles and become unfathered. When we accept no accountability, no prophets and become uncorrectable. When we are unable to produce fruit, no evangelist in our lives and we become unfruitful. When we will not allow others to lead us to a healing source like a pastor and we become unhealed. When we will not accept or don't want the word taught by a teacher in our lives daily and become untaught. 
there can only be one cure. We must return to the cross of Jesus. We must repent. And then we must embrace His fivefold cure for us. Numbers 21.8. Y'all can turn there. Don't give up on me now, saints. It's a hard word, but if you can stomach it, it will save your life. Most medicine that saves you tastes bad, doesn't it? Aren't you a little leery of a medicine that somebody gives you and says this will cure your body and it tastes like sugar? You might be being given a placebo. This church has no intentions of giving you a placebo. We've watched our numbers shrink a little bit lately, and it may shrink some more. But in the end, what is here will remain when Jesus is here. Yes. Numbers 21, 8. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. Is a snake something pretty to look at? Look how pretty this cross is. This is how you usually see the cross represented. Look how pretty. We hang them around our necks in gold, right? Look how pretty. It's a part of our church art. It's a part of our decor in our houses. Was a serpent something pretty to look at? The poison of our vineyard experiences and all other such things, anxiety, hurts, unforgiveness, fear, defeats, indebtedness, and bitterness can only be cured by reconnecting with the Savior at the cross daily. And it is not pretty. It's not pretty. To look into the eyes of a perfect Savior receiving a curse that you deserve is not a pretty thing. I have friends that passed out in the movie Passion of the Christ. Absolutely their bodies couldn't take it. They just fell out. How many of you have looked at church art with a cross in it and passed out at the horror? You see what we've done? Do you see what we've done? We've dressed it up to the point where it has no effect. It has no effect. Sin has no consequence. You don't have to look into the bloody eyes of your Savior. You just go to the next blessed me meeting. You feel a little better because you gave a tip in the offering. You really think you can meet with the King of the universe daily? Look in His eyes, blood dripping in, from his crown of thorns, visiting with him at the cross, not in 1900, but every day, and go on being willfully disobedient, doing things like not tithing, not loving, harboring unforgiveness. You really think you can do that? So you tell me, how acquainted is the American church with the actual cross? This is the cross they're acquainted with, not the cross of Jesus. They're acquainted with crosses made in India, in Pakistan. The work of jewelers, not the bloody sacrificial kapara of Yeshua the Messiah. I want to teach you about the anatomy of Yeshua so that you can think of coming to Him and it changing you. As we do this, the first place that we're going to start is written in your bulletin. It's His brow. Gabe, you can advance that slide. 
This is a picture meant to remind you of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. You notice the heavy drops of blood or sweat? Luke 22, 20, Luke 22, 44 says this. And being in anguish, say anguish. anguish. Being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And he sweat, his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus was in the place of the olive press being pressed by all of the anxieties of the world. And when you think of Jesus' brow and Him in anguish there praying, you need to remember, in Gethsemane Jesus took my cares, worries, and anxieties upon Himself so that I could have shalom, reconnect with the cross, so that his brow can bring you peace again. Quit looking to pharmaceutical help. Quit looking towards the latest self-help gospel. And go back where you know it works. The fountain our forefathers used to sing about. Connect with him at the cross and remember his brow. His brow will bring you peace, is what you should write there. Moving on from his brow, we go to his back. I considered several pictures for this. This was the tamest of them all. That's pretty hard for me to look at. And yet there is something healing about looking at it. Jesus faced the Roman lictor and was wounded to the point of disfigurement so that you could be whole. John 19.1 says, Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. It's hard to understand what that flogging was like, but the man who did it was a professional. And this is the beginning of it. By the end of it, you barely recognize a human being is there. Isaiah 52.14 says, His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. You cannot look into his eyes and continue your trips to the vineyard. 1 Peter 2, 24-25 says, His wounds, by his wounds, you have been healed. His back brings you healing, saints. It goes on to say, For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is our shepherd, and he took that for us. The American church has lost touch with this, or it would not carelessly injure itself. His back brings you healing. Jesus faced agony so that you could be healed in every dimension of your life. You hear me? Every dimension. But I was molested. But my father didn't love me. But this, but that. He took your beating so that you could be healed in every dimension of your life. Take a good look at that. 
It's hard, isn't it? I sat through that movie, and at times my fists were clenched. At other times I wanted to throw up. I felt like somebody had taken Matthew out into the parking lot and was killing him before my eyes. Because I think of Jesus as my very best friend. And yet sometimes I forget about that. And I find myself in the vineyard. The cure is the cross. It's the cure. The next one is his hands. Again, gory and yet rather tame. You can't hear his cry of pain. You don't see the blood splatter that it did. Colossians 2, 13 through 15 says this, He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us, He took it away, nailing it to the cross. When Jesus was nailed to the cross, it symbolized a Hebrew custom. Your debts used to be posted on the front door of your house by a collector for everyone to see them. Same thing for an arrest warrant. They figured at some time you had to go home. So arrest warrants, debts, promissory notes that were unpaid were nailed to your front door. Jesus took that written code that was against you and through His very hand, He did what the Hebrews call kafel. He took the bottom and folded it to the top and drove a nail through it, symbolizing it's paid. Isaiah 40 verse 2 says, Your hard days of service are over, Jerusalem! Your debts have been paid. You have received double for your sins. I always went double for your sins. What does that mean? It's the Hebrew word kafel. It means he doubled them over. He paid them. He considered them canceled. If you received double payment for your sins, literally you wouldn't be here. One sin should kill you. It means he took the bottom and folded it to the top. His hands were pierced in the process. In John 20, 25, one disciple remarked, Unless I see the nails, the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. We've gone down calling him a doubter. I'm telling you today, put your finger in the hole. Close your eyes, saints. Close your eyes. Jesus' hands were nailed to the cross so that your debts, your promissory notes, your arrest warrants could be canceled. Put your finger in the holes in His hands so that you may believe. His hands were meant to bring you forgiveness. And you receive forgiveness so that you can freely give others forgiveness. You receive healing so that you can give others healing. One sure way to show that we don't have it sometimes is we won't give it. You cannot give what you have not received. You can open your eyes now. Let's move to his feet. Colossians 2, 14 through 15 says this. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle over them, triumphing over them by the cross. Every Christian should look at every difficult circumstances from the perspective of the cross. 
in the ancient world to put your foot on the neck of your enemy meant complete and total victory. In Joshua 10.24, Joshua invited everybody to go put their foot on the neck of Israel's enemies. By Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection, He has put your weakness, your fear, your defeat under His feet. And if you're connected with Him, if it's under His feet, it's under yours. Maybe we need to reconnect with Him at the cross so that we can experience the victory our forefathers sang about. Jesus' feet bring you victory. Let's go to his head, brother. Matthew 27, 29 says, And then they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. That is pretty hard to look at, isn't it? I cried when I was preparing this sermon because I spent a week getting rid of all distractions in my life. No TV. Not even the embrace of the people that I love. I wanted to be isolated and alone with my Savior. And when I looked at that picture, it hurt me in a brand new way. I've been serving Him a long time. But when I looked at that picture, suddenly felt like my life had been ungrateful. The thorn is first mentioned in Genesis 3.18 and is part of the curse that came upon Adam. Jesus was crowned with your curse of pain, suffering, and poverty. It entered the world after Adam's sin. He was crowned with thorns so that the curse could be removed. And as Paul said, in Philippians 4.19, My God will supply all my needs according to His riches in Christ Jesus. If you visit this image in your mind, if you relive His experience every day, you won't find yourself looking at something you shouldn't look at in the vineyards. You won't want to touch a, something dead. Since you realize sin is death, you won't want it. We've lost connection with the cross. We don't know what it is to know what was placed upon his head. That ugly, horrible, marred picture is what brings you blessings. Jesus' head brings you blessings rather than curses. You were cursed and he took that curse right there, crowned upon his head, so that you could be blessed. It's a whole new level of bless me gospel, isn't it? Why is it the guys in the shiny suits never do this? <clears throat> the last area of his anatomy that I wish for you to dwell upon today may be the most misunderstood. It's his side. John 19:34. One of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The piercing of Jesus' heart represents the breaking of the heart. The inner wounds and heartbreak of my experiences are released in Jesus as I embrace Him on the cross. Jesus' side brings you inner healing. When you revisit this in your spirit, 
He was pierced so that cleansing blood and water could flow into your life to erase what your parents did to you. To erase what your boyfriend did to you. To erase what your friends did to you. The cross will bring you healing. To be at peace physically. I'm sorry. To be at peace. To be physically healed. To be forgiven. To be in victory. To be blessed. To be emotionally healed. This can only come one way. It is not a one-time trip to the cross. You must visit the cross daily. Every day. When you get up from the cross, you don't walk. You don't jog. You run with all God's speed into the church of the living God where you can be mentored by an apostle figure. You can be corrected by a prophet figure. You can learn to multiply through discipleship and evangelism. And in going, in ongoing healing, you need it. Ongoing healing from the events of your continued life under the guidance of a pastor. You need to get taught and more importantly take personal responsibility for the whole Word of God in your private time. Ultimately, the choice is up to you. We're going to sing. We're going to worship and we're going to sing about the cross and I'm inviting the saved and unsaved alike to come and experience these places again. To feel salvation in a holistic way. To rededicate in a holistic way. But don't you walk down here to do that if you will not embrace all five areas of the rest of the cure. Because it would be a joke and a lie. Matthew, lead us in song, brother. You can put up your books and stuff later. Y'all stand up and worship. So you don't have to wait for music.
sacrificial death we can be made whole 
And when we minister to people, we need to minister as whole people that remember what it was to be broken. Let's pray that God anoint us for that purpose. The prophecy I received yesterday, yesterday said God has formed this foundation. He's polishing the core, the man said, because there will be an explosion. Mm. I want you to know that explosion does not come through marketing. Mm. It will not come through the latest bless me message because God would have to remove me for that to happen again. Mm. It will only come as you learn to become fruitful because you've embraced the cross every day of your life and you are thankful every day of your life and there's no ungratefulness in you. There's no entitlement in you. There is only a sincere love for Jesus. And when you think about His brow, His head, His hands, His feet, His back, His side, remember that He did that for you. Mighty God, Lord, we are joined as a fellowship here. Man, woman, and child. Holy God, we're asking that Your anointing would be upon life-changing ministries. That we would bring people to the foot of Your cross. Mighty God, that we would show them the place we got healed. Then we would plug them into the fivefold ministry. Lord God, that they may be built up, edified, until the time of Your appearing. Holy, Holy One, Lord, let us live up to the name that You've given us changing one life at a time, Lord, life-changing ministries. Let these become your ministers here. Mighty God, let your anointing be upon Ashley. Mighty God, let your anointing be upon George and everybody between them to change lives for the glory of God. Lord, let them be ambassadors of your reconciliation. They were old and Lord, you've made them now new. Teach us to walk in this newness and to be remade and renewed every day at your cross. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus! We're going to come back here for a Christmas play. I could care less about the production of the Christmas play. I want our kids to be blessed. So if we sing off tune, we're not going to worry about it. If we don't get it right, we're not going to worry about it. Abel and I, we hadn't even finished our script. Come on. We're not going to worry about it. We're going to have a good time. The message of Jesus is not Santa and presents. The message of Jesus is the cross. And you've just received Christmas gift. I gave you books and I gave you the cross. Jesus gave you the cross. I have just become a minister of it and now I've commissioned you to do the same. Everywhere you go, introduce people to the cross. Everywhere you go. And our church will grow. And I don't want a church that's big for the sake of having a church that's big. That's Ahaz's altar. I already told you about that. I want to make a difference. I want you to make a difference. Amen? Amen. Amen. Y'all go eat lots or fast lots, whatever's on your mind. Don't forget, there are children that are starving in Mexico. But you do have to eat. And I'm going to eat today. Yeah. Amen. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm gonna eat. Chris, you are awesome, buddy. Really? You are awesome. I love you.